0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 2.19, The Pennsylvania Frame of Government. Welcome back. Before we get started for this week, I do want to make a very quick note about something that you've probably already noticed. About a week ago, I went ahead and updated the cover art. Now, I did this because, as some of you probably have noticed, I am most certainly not a graphic artist and I decided that after two years of running this show, it was time to get some real cover art for it. So, I hope you enjoy the changes. I hope it looks a lot nicer. And let's dive back into Pennsylvania. Last time, when we left off, we were looking at the founding of Pennsylvania. We saw that, following receiving his charter, William Penn began making all kinds of promises that he was not going to interfere with the religious liberties of the people who were already settled in the area. This follows along what appears to be a long-lasting devotion to religious tolerance that William Penn seems to have really believed in. This week, we are going to pick up right where we left off and dive into the Pennsylvania frame of government. With William Penn saying all of the right things, it is now his moment to put his money where his mouth is and prove to everybody that he is not just a religious zealot, coming in to disrupt the order which the colonists in the region had been previously accustomed. The colonists already there must have wondered if the lack of religious tolerance that was omnipresent in New England was about to come crashing down on them. Initially, at least, the Pennsylvania colony moved forward without any kind of an official government structure. For William Penn, the entire point of having such a large charter, assuming that the goal was to make a profit, which does seem likely to be one of his motivations, was to sell as many plots as possible. Yes, Penn probably did have views on the structure of the colony and truly wanted to build a colony that fit his needs, but that doesn't mean he didn't want to make a profit on the side. Making a profit meant selling shares. Initially, at least, Penn was trying to sell 5,000-acre shares for £100 each. However, that was a good amount of money and the sales quickly stagnated. With slow sales the first year of Penn's time in his new colony, he primarily spent that time trying to be a salesman. He played with different formulas to move the plots of land, including reducing their size and thus reducing the cost. He also attempted to allow people to pool resources and coordinate their efforts when purchasing a plot. By the fall of 1681, over 250 people had purchased a share of land. By the end of 1681, however, it was clear that the land in the colony, while selling, simply wasn't doing so fast enough. There are a couple of reasons for this. The first is that economic struggle that I had just brought up. Purchasing land in Pennsylvania at this point was far more speculative than the relative safety of land purchases up in, say, New England, Virginia, or even in New York. Pennsylvania was the new colony in town, and with colonial matters, there was never going to be any promises that you were making a good investment. Beyond mere economics, there is also the problem that there is no governmental structure operating within Pennsylvania at this point. For those who were interested in getting land, they all knew that at some point William Penn was probably going to pen some kind of governmental structure. By this point, it had become standard in the colonies to put a government in place. We have already looked at places like Massachusetts, the Carolinas, and Connecticut, amongst others. William Penn had been politically outspoken back in England, and surely he was going to want to put something in place just as soon as he could. This made investing in the colony a risky prospect for speculators who may have otherwise been interested in purchasing land. Again, William Penn said all of the right things. However, where is this going to leave those who purchase land when Penn decides to go back on his word and put rules in place that are decidedly beneficial to his fellow Quakers? You can believe Penn to be as high-minded as you like, but now men were being asked to bet on it. William Penn, therefore, had an absolute motivation to get some kind of a structure in place as soon as possible. It would help make the colony more stable, and people looking to buy land would be happy to see a nice, stable colony in which to do so. Beyond that, there is the additional motivation that a working government would simply make life smoother in the colony. People do not want to live in a lawless society. They depend on those laws to tell them what is and is not acceptable. That isn't to say that Pennsylvania was ever flirting with anarchy. Remember that the laws of England would have still been in place. However, from a pragmatic point of view, having some kind of an established, functioning government in place would help govern relations between everybody. Though Penn had become distracted by trying to move land, he had always fully intended to establish government in Pennsylvania. Indeed, nearly from the time he first got his charter, Penn was busy working at forming the basis of government for the colony. The original system that Penn had envisioned would have seen something resembling a bicameral system. Representatives would be elected to a lower house, and from that lower house a much smaller group would be elected by the others in the lower house into an upper house that would then provide oversight over that same lower house. Penn did seem to have a democratic streak in him and wanted to ensure that those elected to the assembly remember that they are serving at the benefit of the electorate. This included using secret ballots during elections to help maintain any threat from loss of anonymity. This rather high-minded constitution would have placed a substantial amount of decision-making ability in the hands of the population, with the legislators acting as mere proxies for their constituents' votes. Penn would also bring with this form of government certain civil liberties that would a century later find themselves to be key portions of the Bill of Rights. This included the right to a trial by a jury of your peers and the promised religious tolerance that Penn had been promising all along. At the same time, Penn did write at length regarding all of the things that would be prohibited from the colony, including just about every single morsel of fun imaginable. Taverns and bars were prohibited, as was gambling of any kind. However, this is not going to be the government that we see adopted in Pennsylvania. Instead, this is going to provide a basic framework for what would become the actual Pennsylvania frame of government. Well, the original proposal by Penn was shockingly democratic for the day. Ultimately, he would bow and redirect power from the assembly into a more powerful governor. This aside, however, the Pennsylvania frame of government truly was a stunning document in the moment. It is arguably the most liberal governing document that would be produced in the colonies, with the exception of an amendment to the frame of government itself at the beginning of the 18th century, right until the run-up to the revolution itself. Penn opened the frame of government with a preamble that went into detail about the necessity of government. During this, Penn discussed the divine right by which governments exist. He settled on two primary principles of government. The first was to terrify all evildoers. Secondly, to cherish those that do well, which gives government a life beyond corruption and makes it as durable in the world as good men shall be. Penn would further elaborate that governments were a necessity and served three primary ends. First, Penn explained that government must exist because men would often follow their passions against their reason. This allows for a corrupting influence to exist amongst men. One that would allow things to exist that go against the good things that they should otherwise know. Penn likewise understood that a government needed to be modeled to fit the population and not the other way around. In other words, each society has its own specific issues to them. The government should be designed to reflect those issues specifically. Finally, Penn argued that the three commonly accepted types of government— namely monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, all have a core connection. Penn wrote, Any government is free to the people under it, whatever be the frame, where the laws rule and the people are party to those laws. And more than this is tyranny, oligarchy, or confusion. This acknowledgement that government is something that ultimately finds its power and acceptance from the people who live under it is an acknowledgement to the idea of popular sovereignty. This is a concept that is going to become one of the most defining features of the United States, and it is something that remains at the very core of the American political belief. Penn's opening statement acknowledges that the power of government comes from the subjects under that government, and it is a telling insight into his views of government, and is a position that will fall well in line with the Age of Enlightenment, which, depending on your dating, was either a few decades from beginning or was just then in its infancy. Penn writes that he believes that in order for a government to be good and just, it requires that the men who make up that government be the same. That evil people are going to corrupt even the best government. Penn wanted the government of his colony to be run by intelligent men, men of virtue and high morals. He writes specifically about wanting men who owe their station in life to those morals and abilities and not based upon birthright. Penn, it is worth noting, is being very careful here. Obviously, anything he passes is going to have to pass muster with the king, a person who was indeed born directly into that position of power. Penn instead words it in such a way that the distinction is that in Pennsylvania, you're not going to have the land-owning class like you do in England. There is no aristocracy to lead the way. This is backed up by the fact that Penn himself was a member of one of those families in the aristocracy, even if Penn personally had largely rejected that lifestyle. Penn wraps up the preamble by saying, To support power is reverence with the people, and to secure the people from the abuse of power, that they may be free by their just obedience and the magistrates honorable for their just administration. For liberty without obedience is confusion and obedience without liberty is slavery. To carry evenness is partly owing to the Constitution, and partially to the magistrates. Where either of these fail, government will be subject to convulsions. But where both are wanting, it must be totally subverted. Then, where both meet, the government is likely to endure. At the time Penn was writing this, probably late 1681 into early 1682, we are still seven years away from Locke's two treatises of government, the document that is often seen as the beginning of the Enlightenment. However, what Penn has produced here is a document that fits well into the narrative of the overall Enlightenment. Penn, through his preamble, has not only questioned the necessity for government, but has also gone further and discussed that the power in any government always must arise from the subjects under that system. Well, not going as far as later American Enlightenment thinkers, men like Thomas Paine for instance, and declaring that the government is nothing more than a necessary evil, Penn's declarations here were progressive at the time. Penn believed that government could be a useful tool in bettering the lives of the subjects under it. At the same time, however, Penn in that final paragraph, which I read just a moment ago, explains that precarious balancing act that the government must carry out it is necessary that the government allow for liberty. However, in return for their liberty, people must agree to give their obedience to that government. Liberty without obedience leads to confusion, a society devoid of meaningful structure. On the other hand, should a government demand obedience but deny liberty, those living under that government are nothing more than slaves to that system. A stable government is one where those two forces can be balanced and can exist harmoniously with each other. Well, I could continue waxing poetically regarding the preamble by Penn, let's move on and look at the actual nuts and bolts of Penn's government. Initially, when considering how he wanted to design the government, Penn had hoped for a decidedly more democratic system. We discussed earlier today the plans he had in the Pennsylvania Constitution, for what would have been the most liberal colony by a pretty good margin. Penn ultimately would have to back off some of his loftier ambitions. This is likely due to a mixture of political pressure, plus concerns over the more pragmatic ability of his government to be sustaining for the colony. What we are left with, the frame of government, is both more conservative in application than his original plans, yet remains a relatively liberal document in its execution. The structure of the frame of government largely falls in line with the things we have previously seen in other colonies. The main source of power inside of Pennsylvania fell to the governor, who, along with an elected council, would make the laws. The assembly acted as a check on the powers of the executive, though they themselves could not pass laws nor even suggest laws. Rather, the main objective of the assembly was to ratify or reject the laws sent to them by the governor and the council. This system functioned essentially as a bicameral system, the council being the upper house and the assembly being the lower house. The governor of the colony would be allowed a triple vote in the council, which made him the most powerful single person within the colony. Once the council passed a law, it went down to the assembly to be ratified or rejected. The electorate of Pennsylvania was going to be made up of the freemen of the colony, Pan further defined the Freeman as being every inhabitant that shall be a purchaser of 100 acres of land and cultivated at least 10 of those acres. Freed servants would be considered freemen as long as they owned at least 50 acres, though they would be required to cultivate at least 20 acres of that plot. The third path to becoming a freeman was any member of the colony that was not held in servitude that paid a scot and lot. A scott and lot essentially means that they were paying their taxes. Initially, Penn had wanted the assembly to be 200 seats, though it was expandable up to 500 seats. Also included was strict term limits. Penn wrote in section 4 that, After the first seven years, every one of the said third parties that goeth yearly off shall be incapable of being chosen again for one whole year following that so all may be fitted for government and have experience of the care and burden of it. The concept of term limits was an interesting addition to the frame of government. It meant continually high turnover. However, it was also a method by which to spread the ultimate burden. It kept any one person from being too powerful within the assembly because ultimately they would end up getting temporarily booted out every few years. Yet, At the same time, it ensured that there would be a constant flow of fresh blood into the assembly, which would then hopefully in turn help fend off the risk of stagnation. There are other key portions of the frame of government that are worth mentioning. Penn showed his interest in seeing progress within the colony. Penn gave the council the right to build public schools, as well as issued rewards for authors of useful sciences and inventions. Penn's frame of government came with the standard feature that the assembly could hear legal cases as necessary, which I'll speak more about in just a moment. Another key provision of the frame of government was that the council would divide itself from time to time into four distinct committees for the better management of the colony. These committees included a committee of plantations, a committee of justice and safety, a committee of trade and treasury, and finally a committee of manners, education, and the arts. In addition to the frame itself, Penn also proposed what are known as the laws agreed upon in England. These are the laws that Penn had already penned regarding the liberties that the colonists would enjoy within the new colony. Well, there are a number of these. I'm going to highlight some of the more interesting ones. First, there are several anti-bribery provisions in place. In fact, right after Penn establishes what a freeman is, he sets forth laying out the punishment for a politician accepting bribes. Penn is clear that elections shall be free and voluntary, and that any elector receiving any reward or gift in meat, drink, monies, or otherwise, would forfeit their right to elect. Penn would also write that briberies and extortions would be severely punished. Likewise, Penn wrote that the courts shall be open and justice neither be sold, denied, or delayed. The concept of open courts is something that would go on to form a core part of the legal system of the future United States. Further, on the topic of justice, Penn, keep it in line with English law, did make a provision for jury trials with the traditional 12 peers. He likewise included a provision giving the accused the right to know the allegations against them, as well as 10 days to prepare for trial. A minimum 10 days notice to prepare for trial following the filing of an indictment continues to be a standard right throughout the American judicial system. The legal system underpin also included features such as bail and an interesting provision that all fees in cases should be moderate. This push to control legal fees is interesting and at least took into account an attempt to be a fairer administration of justice. After all, those with means would be far less affected by legal fees than the poor within the colony. There is even a rudimentary asset forfeiture feature in the laws which would allow the government to seize a felon's land the government could seize land in order to pay the injured party back. In the case of capital felonies, one-third of the offender's property would go to the next of kin of the victim, with the remaining two-thirds going to the family of the condemned. In the aspect of civic improvement, Penn established that all children within the province over the age of 12 should be taught a useful trade. Penn wrote that, To the end none may be idle, but the poor may work to live, and the rich, if they become poor, may not want. This, when combined with the earlier mention of the council having the responsibility to build public schools, means that Pennsylvania was going to have a minimum and mandatory education requirement. This both is going to help prevent poverty while ensuring a more educated electorate moving forward. The new laws would include provisions for the kind treatment of servants, as well as a mention that all scandalous and malicious reporters backbiters, defamers, and spreaders of false news against either the magistrates or private persons shall be accordingly punished as enemies of the peace and concord of the province. There is little information out there to go into Penn's motives on this article, however, we can make some educated guesses. As a Quaker, Penn had been part of a highly persecuted group for most of his adult life. Such laws in place would help curtail any future attacks on himself and the society of friends. However, this particular law would also ensure that the government would be immune from receiving too much criticism, which would upset the status of the day. This provided a shield against overly critical writings about the government that Penn may have feared could upend his system. While not overtly a Quaker colony, these laws may have been put into place to help avoid a situation where Quaker hegemony was challenged within the colony. On religion, Penn would, as promised, grant religious toleration to the colony. However, let's be clear that religious toleration only went so far. Religious tolerance for Penn meant that all sects of Christianity should be tolerated. In order to be considered one of the freemen of the colony who could vote or hold office, it was still required that you believed in the almighty and eternal God to be the creator of the upholder and ruler of the world. For officeholders, there was an additional rule that they must profess faith in Jesus Christ. At a bare minimum, this means that in order to escape religious persecution, you are going to have to have some faith in God. Being an atheist simply was not going to work in 1680s Pennsylvania. As far as that provision for officeholders that they must believe in Jesus Christ— it was likely put in to further narrow the scope of who could work in Penn's government. The provision was likely established to keep Jewish people out of the government of Pennsylvania, limited as though their numbers would have been at the time. The final laws proposed here can simply be described as Penn's catch-all. In other words, these range from laws against pretty obviously criminal offenses, all the way down to a strict set of laws on morality. These laws are going to be far-reaching and are utterly draconian by modern standards. Penn specifically states that activities that would bring the wrath of God upon the colony are going to be prohibited. He names these offenses against God as being swearing, cursing, lying, profane talking, drunkenness, drinking of healths, obscene words, incest, sodomy, rape, whoredom, fornication, and other uncleanliness, not to be repeated, All treasons, murders, duels, felonies, seditions, maims, forcible entries, and other violence to the persons and estate of inhabitants within this province. All prize, stage plays, cards, dice, may games, gamesters, revels, bull baitings, cock fightings, bear battings, and the like, which excite the people to rudeness, cruelty, looseness, or irreligion shall be respectively discouraged and severely punished, according to the appointment of the governor and the freemen in the Provincial Council and General Assembly, as also all proceedings contrary to these laws that are not here made expressly penal. Okay, so a lot of these things do have a legitimate reason for existing. You obviously are going to need to outlaw actions like rape, treason, and murder, along with several other crimes. However, outlying things like card games and dice is a bit of a killjoy. Yet, Penn goes even further and outlaws things such as rudeness and cursing. Now, in all fairness to Penn, it is not the first time that we have seen strict morality laws put into place throughout the colonies. This final provision shows just how much power Penn had over Pennsylvania, and his interest in ensuring not just a functional government, but a strict public morality. The Frame of Government was completed in April of 1682 and was all set to be voted on at the Chester Assembly that we discussed last time. The Chester Assembly, if you'll recall, took place in early December of 1682. Unfortunately for us, there is little in the way of information that we can rely upon to know exactly what debates took place at this assembly. What we do know, however, is that the Frame of Government, that document that we have spent literally all this episode talking about, was rejected at the conference. What we do know is that the conference took issue with the size of the government itself. The concern was that having such a large government would prove cumbersome to manage. There is also likely a concern that by having such a large government, it would act to limit the power of any single seat. There was also the practical considerations with having such a large assembly. A 72-member council and an assembly of at least 200 people is going to be a rather demanding number for a colony that is still limited by its size. There are only so many talented men to go around. With at least a temporary rejection of the frame of government, William Penn was forced to consider changes to it. Initially, at least, it appears that he instead turned his attention to the prospect of designing a new city, Philadelphia. However, it was no secret that should the colony find success, they were going to need to have a functioning government sooner rather than later. The next chance for Penn to get a government passed came during the 1st Pennsylvania General Assembly, held from March 10th until April 14th, 1683. Among the things that the General Assembly set out to do was adopt an official government during the meeting. Turning back to the previous year's frame of government, a series of modifications were proposed. To deal with the burdensome size of government, the Assembly worked towards reducing that size. The result is that the council was reduced from 72 members to a paltry 18. The assembly of 200 was reduced to just 54 members. The second immediate problem that appeared was that the assembly was not thrilled about having a role of purely approving and rejecting legislation. The assembly wanted the right to propose legislation as well. This is something that the now much smaller council would have been anxious to avoid. As the most powerful member of the colony, William Penn was not thrilled about the prospect of a more powerful assembly either. This is going to continue to be a sticking point for years to come, as the assembly would continue to clamor for more power, while Penn and the council found themselves working to keep the assembly in a role to limit their ability to personally legislate. The outcome of the First General Assembly of Pennsylvania is a past, though altered, frame of government. This new frame of government, often known as the Frame of Government of 1683, featured a smaller government with the reduced numbers I mentioned a moment ago. Likewise, some of the dates of the elections were modified, but that was more out of pragmatism of wanting to avoid making people vote during the depths of winter than for any ideological reasons. This should hopefully also explain to all of you why I have spent all of my time today explaining a government that ultimately would never be adopted. The frame that we are going to see in 1683 is basically just the frame of 1682 with a handful of modifications. Among the other modifications to note regarding the frame of 1683 was a clarification that the frame would also control for the lower counties, which had been recently annexed into Pennsylvania. As a friendly reminder, the lower counties are now modern-day Delaware. For William Penn, the events of 1683 cannot be viewed as anything other than highly successful. Not only was his proposed government approved, but with the now reduced size of government, Penn's personal position was elevated. Despite there only being 18 council members, as compared to the previous 72, Penn managed to retain a triple vote in the council. With so few members, Penn would be better able than before to completely dominate Pennsylvania policy. So long as he could get some of his Quaker friends into positions of power, he could have a colony that was able to preach religious tolerance while still being a colony run and dominated by the Quakers. Next time, we are going to wrap up our introduction to the Pennsylvania colony. We are going to spend our time looking at how the frame of government worked in practice, as well as the developments and disputes in those early years in Pennsylvania. Until then, I hope you all have a great two weeks that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we work on tying a bow around the founding of Pennsylvania.